Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 6. Psalm 6, hear now the word of our God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 6 is a part of a group of five psalms here in Psalms 3 through 7 that explore the theme of refuge. We saw in Psalm 1 that the the Psalter begins, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on God's law he meditates day and night. And then in Psalm 2, we saw that it was the Messiah, the anointed King, who is the Son of God, the one in whom we must take refuge if we wish to be blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And then these next five psalms, Psalms 3 through 7, explore what it means to take refuge, to take refuge in the Lord. This Advent, we are looking at these songs of refuge. And Psalm 6 now turns particularly to teach us the art of lamentation. What does it mean to lament? This was something that many years ago I was listening to a a program on Moody Radio and they were, they were interviewing a contemporary Christian musician, uh, and song leader who, uh, and they were, they were talking about how so many contemporary praise choruses are all about praising God and there were so few songs of lament in the contemporary genre. And, and the, 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 the song leader was saying, yeah, there's, there's lots of that in the Psalms. The Psalms are full of it, but we, we don't have it in our modern repertoire. And the interviewer asked, well, what can we do about it? And the guy was like, I, I, I don't know. This was the first time I ever wished I had a cell phone. It was, it was a call-in program, and I was sort of like, how about singing some psalms? Um, now, I'm, I'm happy to report that over the last 20 years, a lot, a lot of progress has been made. There are now lots of churches, not only that are singing psalms, but then also part of it is when you start singing the psalms, you also then, your, your mind and your heart gets sort of recharged in these modes. And so people have actually started writing good laments. So, yeah, that's, that's been the history. of it, it, People sometimes tell you that, that, oh, they only sang psalms for... Well, actually, it's when they started singing psalms regularly that they started writing good hymns. That's the pattern always goes together. If you're if you're sing if you that's a long story, but I won't go to it. But but the point is that when you sing the psalms well and when you pray the psalms well, then you learn how to lament. Because there's so much in our culture today that that doesn't have a place for lament. 
And so learning to lament is especially helpful. Just a comment on the, uh, on the title, To the Choir Master. It's, this is designed to be sung together. It's designed for the, the, sort of the, the temple choir to be singing. And it's with stringed instruments. Uh, there, it, it, there's a whole conversation we could have on stringed instruments and how instruments work in worship. But then, according to the Sheminith, now, that could be translated simply, according to the eighth or according to the octave. Uh, the only question is, what, what does that mean? It could be, uh, the, the footnote says, a musical term. Um, yes, and, but it, it might be helpful to just translate it according to the octave or according to the eighth, because that's what the word means. And when you think of it that way, the early fathers recognized that the principle here is the number eight. There, you know, there, are, there are seven days in a week. So the eighth day is the first day of the new week, the new creation. And likewise, there are seven notes in the scale, and so the eighth note is the first note of the next octave. And that's not accidental. And there are two psalms that use this designation, Psalm 6 and Psalm 12, both of which are laments. The octave is particularly appropriate for a lament because the octave signals a new beginning, and the lament recognizes that something is fundamentally wrong, and we need a new beginning. Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1, we'll start in verse 56. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Um, verse 56 notes that Mary remained with Elizabeth for about three months. 
Now, we, we had been told earlier that it was the sixth month with her who was called barren. So if Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months, that means you could say, oh, she left just before the birth. Although, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern customs, this is where all the family, the women of the family, men aren't included. All the women of the family come together for the lying in. Sort of, this is a practice throughout most of, most of human history until the 19th century. Said, hey, let's have doctors take over. But um, yeah, if you know anything about my views of the 19th century, that was not a compliment. Um, but the, the women, the women folk of the family would gather as soon as as soon as there were signs of ah, she is probably going to go into labor soon, and it might be weeks that they would stay together. Uh, in order to care for her through her childbirth, so that means that when it said that when, it's, when we're, we heard that when Mary left, don't think that that happened before the rest of the chapter. It's just we're, clo- we're we're closing up the story of Mary there. So Mary's still there for the birth of John. Undoubtedly, Mary was still there for the circumcision of John, which means that Mary's in the room when Zechariah says. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And his eyes cross the room as he sees the one betrothed to the son of David in the house of his servant David. After all, Zechariah is a priest. He's of the line of Levi. What does the house of David have to do with the house of Levi? I mean, obviously they hopefully like each other, but they're not related. The opening stanza of Zechariah's song has nothing to do with any promise to Aaron or Levi. But with the house of David, he looks across the room and he sees the one who bears his Lord. And he says, blessed be God for what he has done. Yes, in this room, but not the one all of you are thinking of. (laughs) Only in the second stanza does he say, and you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High. I mean, there's a way in which, I, mean, I, I won't pretend that I did, had anything to do with this. It was entirely accidental. But the Song of Zechariah is the perfect answer to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 laments over my troubles. My bones are troubled. My soul is troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? And that prayer, sure, I'm going through tough stuff. But the, Psalms, the prayer of Psalm 6, very much like the prayer of Zechariah that we saw a couple of weeks ago, Zechariah's prayer in the temple wasn't, Oh Lord, please give me a baby. That ship had sailed. Zechariah's prayer in the temple was, Oh Lord, how long until you do something to bring salvation to your people? How long until you send your anointed one? And that was the answer that he received. And the song of Zechariah is blessing God for doing what he promised in answering the laments, the how longs of all the prayers and all the tears of all the years. Too often nowadays the the church communicates the idea that what really matters is is being happy. And we've forgotten how to weep. Don't get me wrong. We still do plenty of weeping. But if we don't know how to weep, if we don't know how to lament, then our our tears wind up sucking us downward. Psalm 6 shows us how to practice the art of lamentation. It's, it's, It's not just sort of like, it's not just sort of like, ah, you should do it, but here's how to do it. 
here's how to do it well. We've often talked about complaints and the importance of complaints. A complaint is where you recognize that something is wrong, and so you bring a complaint to someone who can do something about it. In that respect, a complaint takes more of a legal form. Here's the problem, and here's, you know, please fix it. <laughs> now, a lament can be connected with a complaint here in Psalm 6. We'll, see, we'll hear there's a complaint connected to the lament. But lament does not need to include a complaint. So, for instance, if you read uh, in the book of Job, Job 3, Job 3 is entirely a lament. There's, he's not asking God to do anything about it. He's simply saying, ah And that's a good thing too. But here in Psalm 6, the lament and the complaint are woven together. Psalm 6 teaches us how to lament, how to weep over our sin, and over how to weep over the corruption that is in the world because of sin. Once again, we're seeing sin and misery together in the way that the scriptures deal with our problem. What's our problem? You know, sin's part of our problem. Misery is part of our problem. It's one problem. The fall brought all mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And you see the two woven together here. The psalmist opens, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. I know what I deserve. God is angry. And he is angry for a good reason. Because I have sinned. I deserve his rebuke. This is an important place to start in lament. We don't start by saying, I don't deserve this. I'm, I'm such a good person. No, we start by saying, please don't deal with me according to what I deserve. Do not deal with me in anger. Do you ever think about, why is God angry? Why is God angry? Okay, well, we've sinned, yes. But why is God angry because of our sin? God is angry because he loves us. Anger and love are not opposed to each other. God's anger is because of his love. He's not throwing a hissy fit. It's not that, oh, you messed up my beautiful world and now I've got to fix your mess. That's not what's going on here. God is angry because he loves all that he made. He loves us. He wants us to be with him. And the problem is that we don't love him. We don't want to be with him. We want to go our own way and create our own little kingdoms without him. If God should rebuke us in his anger, if he should discipline us in his wrath, what would he do? He would give you exactly what you want. You want your own little kingdom? Okay, fine. You can have it. Imagine that. Your own little kingdom where everything happens exactly the way you want it. Ha, wouldn't that be awesome? Except, of course, um, there are no other people in this kingdom because they also get exactly what they want. And everybody gets what, ex what they want, which means that there's no relationship in this kingdom. There's no love in this kingdom because well, you, you might say, oh, but I, w I want people to love me. <laughs> but if that's... If, if everything is about you and what you want, then everybody else gets what they want, then we get further and further apart in our own little kingdoms until we don't have connection with anything or anyone. 
part of the disintegration of the self that is part of coming under God's judgment. It's been rightly said that hell is the best thing that God can do for some people. It's not that it's not that God's doing something worse. It's the best thing He can do for them because they will not have Him. They will not have relationship with Him. And if you don't love God, then your love for others is going to have to find some other source to keep it from becoming all about me. And the problem is, love, love, love for others always winds up becoming selfish if it's not grounded in God. If, it's not, if your love for others is based on something other than love for God, then what, what is it about that person that you love? It's what they do for you. It's how you feel when you're around them. What if that goes away? Will you still love the person when they're no longer loving you? Love for others quickly curves into love for self unless it is rooted in love for God. But David says, please, don't discipline me in your wrath. And Psalm 6 never spells out the details of David's situation. Thanks be to God. We don't need to know that. Oh, you could speculate. You could, oh, was it, was it about you know, the, after his adultery with Bathsheba as he watched his infant son die? Or after Absalom had driven him out of Jerusalem, which that was given to us as the background for Psalm 3. But the Psalms were not given to us so that we could analyze David's psychology. The Psalms were given so that we could sing them with him. Because whatever difficulty, whatever trial, whatever situation you face, Psalm 6 fits that situation. That's the, the lack of specificity is actually what gives it its ability to be sung in so many circumstances. And so we should think of the I of the Psalm of David as David himself. When you think of the Psalms of David, that singular fits the person of the king and the plural fits the people of Israel. Because, of course, our Lord Jesus is the, is the singular singer of the psalm, and we are the plural singers of the psalm. Indeed, even our Lord Jesus could say, in fact, it's really important that he say, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Our Lord Jesus never sinned. But as he approached the cross, he took our sin upon himself, and the anger of God burned against him. He bore the wrath of his Father. And as he prepared to go to the cross, Jesus could truly say, verse 2, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Languishing goes beyond just weak. Because to be weak is one thing, but... To be languishing means to be increasingly weak. The weakness is getting worse. Languishing is a process. It's getting, I, I, am, I am going the wrong direction. My bones are troubled, are greatly troubled. This is not just a superficial problem. My bones are the underlying structure that holds me together. If your malady has reached your bones then it has reached the core of who you are. My bones are troubled, and even more deeply, my soul is greatly troubled. My inward parts are languishing, but my soul is greatly troubled. 
I mean, if you've ever heard those little three little words, you have cancer, that may refer to a spiritual to a physical problem, <laughs> but my observation is that the emotional and spiritual struggles that follow are usually far more challenging than the physical trial. Indeed, the psalmist abruptly turns to the Lord and asks, But you, O Lord, how long? The psalmist avoids the specifics of his life precisely so that you can put the particulars of yours right there. What situation are you facing? And who is God in the midst of that situation? What has God said that he will do about it? But you, O Lord, how long? And the psalmist pleads with God, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The psalms teach us to pray in the imperative mood. Not just, please God, will you? But even to insist, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me. Now, the word translated life in verse 4 is the same word translated soul. So it's deliver my soul. The same soul that is greatly troubled in verse 3. Deliver my soul. Deliver the very part of me that is most greatly troubled. And think of how David says this. How can God save me? Turn. God must turn. Yes. I'm languishing here. I'm dying. There's nothing I can do to change my circumstances and make everything okay. In other words, if God continues on his current course, then I'm going to die. And so we plead with God to turn, change direction. Now, this is not saying that God changes in some... It's saying that it's talking about the course of history, the course of my life in relation to God. And I'm like, the way things are going now, I'm in trouble. You have to do something. You have to turn. Now, why, why should God listen to you? Why should the creator of the universe pay attention to what we want? I mean, if we think that God will listen to us because I'm somebody special. I'm sorry, we're not. There is only one person whom the Father listens to because he is somebody special. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the one and only Son, the unique, only begotten Son of the Father. Why does God listen to you? It's not because you're so special. God listens to you because Jesus is so special and you have been united to Jesus. God hears the one who prays to him in the name of Jesus. Because God says that he will not hear the prayers of the wicked. He will not hear the prayers of those who turn away from him. God will save us for the sake of his steadfast love. Notice it's not. God will save us because we're so great. This is what God had told Israel in Deuteronomy. It's not because of your wealth. It's not because of your power. It's not because of your righteousness. Because of my steadfast love. Because of my chesed. My covenant faithfulness. That's why I will save you. 
And so that's where when we come to God in lament, we need to recognize, who am I? I'm nobody special. But I come to you in the name of Jesus. I come to you in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And He is someone special. Hear me because of your steadfast love. Not hear me because I'm so great. Hear me because of who you are, what you've said, what you have done in Jesus Christ. And really, that's what David appeals to in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? If I die, what will happen to your promises? What will happen to your steadfast love? And again, this is all rooted in who David is and therefore in who Jesus is. What happens if he, the Lord's anointed, dies and stays dead? Well, in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? We're so used to living on this side of the resurrection, we don't always think about what it was like to live on that side. But, all it takes is a thought experiment. What would have happened to our access to God, our ability to come to God in prayer, if Jesus had died and stayed dead? If Jesus died and stayed dead... Well, there'd be no resurrection. Jesus would not have ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus would not have opened the way into the heavenly holy holy of holies so that we could enter and in him. If Jesus had died and stayed dead, there would be no way to come and pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In death, if, if death always gets the last word, then there is no praise of God in Sheol, the realm where death prevails. If we all die and there is no resurrection, then what will happen to God's chesed? What will happen to God's steadfast love, His faithfulness to His promises? When you are in the middle of those hard times, when you are in the middle of those moments of of darkness and depression and despair, remember that our Lord Jesus, when He went down into the grave, when he was forsaken by his father, he endured that darkness for you. And in the Christian life, there are still days like this. Actually, our psalm suggests it's more that there are nights like this. Nights of darkness when we cannot see hope or joy or peace. We long for shalom. We long for peace and well-being. But all we see is darkness. That's why Advent is so important in the Christian life. This isn't just sort of thinking intellectually about, oh, back then, before Jesus came. But we recognize that in the Christian life, there are moments and places, there are nights, where this is where we live. And that's why we must learn to practice our laments. Lamenting well takes practice. Because a good lament never loses sight of who God is, or who I am before Him. I, I don't know if, whether you've ever spent a night moaning and weeping, but the psalmist uses that language in verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. 
I was once reading a letter from the 1830s, uh, a letter to Virginia Shelby telling her that her husband was dead. The letter was well-worn, made it a little hard to read, but what made it especially hard to read was the tears staining every page. One round of tears had dried, and then she opened the letter again, and she wept again. And you could see the layers of tears after 180 years. The grief of her husband's death stained not only that page, but her whole life. My eye wastes away because of grief. Now, moaning, weeping, this is the right thing to do in the middle of that grief. And that moment is not the moment to go up to somebody and say, Ah, God works all things together for good. It's a true statement, and he does. And there will be a time to say it later. (laughs) But in the middle of the lament, that's not the moment to say it. In the middle of the lament, it is right to weep with those who weep. You know, Job's friends did one thing right. When they came to meet with Job, they didn't start yapping. They sat in silence for seven days. Imagine that. Imagine sitting with your friend for seven days in silence. We have a hard time keeping silent for a few seconds. Seven days? I, I aspire to be more like Job's friends in that respect. Hopefully not in the other respect. But to do well at weeping with those who weep, lamenting with those who lament, this is an important part of what it means to walk together before our Lord Jesus. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus in a few minutes. But he wept. Sorrow and grief and mourning are the proper response when your bones are troubled, when your soul is greatly troubled. Now, why why did Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus? Part of it's because he knew full well that raising Lazarus was not going to solve the problem. I mean, sure, everybody would be happy for a few days, a few years, and then Lazarus is going to die again. We're back in the same place. So Jesus says to Martha, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is why death continues to provoke our grief. After my mother died, there were lots of tears. And even 16 years later, I can still be reduced to tears by a poignant memory. Turning your bed into a sea of tears is perfectly appropriate. And that's where we should enter into the sorrow and grief of those who weep as we too suffer with them. Now, Psalm 88 will leave us there. That's probably why we sing Psalm 88 at every Good Friday service because that's where Good Friday ends. But Psalm 6 does not leave us there. 
in the midst of our lamenting. Psalm 6 teaches us the full pattern of lamentation because a full lament sees hope at the end. Depart from me, verse 8, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The final section of of the psalm weaves together all the language we've heard already. So the Lord hears the sound of my weeping. That was verses 6 and 7. And then God turns to me and my enemies are turned back. Verse 10. My soul was greatly troubled. Verse 3. But when God hears my plea, also verse 3, then my enemies will be greatly troubled. Verse 10. Here in the final section of the psalm, David turns and addresses the wicked. Get lost, you workers of evil, because the Lord has heard. He has turned, and He has heard the sound of my weeping. He has accepted me and my prayers, because He has accepted Jesus and His prayers. When you were justified in Christ, God accepted you in Him. God forgave your sins and imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. So think about what that means. If God has accepted you, then God has accepted your prayers, your good works, everything that comes with you. Our Confession of Faith puts it this way. The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. It's not that sort of our, we're free from problems. <laughs> it's rather that God accepts us in Jesus. This is why it's so important to see that, that when he accepts you in Jesus, he accepts you the whole you. It's, it's, so it's not just that, it's not that you're sort of like, oh, I'm, I'm still such a sinner. Well, yes, you do sin, but sinner is no longer actually the way God sees you. He sees you as righteous in his sight. He sees you as yours. The persons of believers, my bones are, great, are, are troubled, my soul is greatly troubled. Well, your bones and your soul are both part of you. And so when your person is accepted, you and all that is yours is accepted in Jesus. So when David says the Lord accepts my prayer, he's not saying his prayers have been perfect, but rather trusting in God's chesed, in his steadfast love, he says, I know that you have heard me. Indeed, this theme of chesed, of steadfast love, is where Zechariah begins his song in Luke 1. Because he blesses God because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Precisely the theme that Psalm 6 had used. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
God has heard your lament and he has sent Jesus to do what we could not do for ourselves. The reason why we lament and bewail our sin and misery is yes, because we recognize things are not as they should be, but also because we long for the day when Jesus will make things as they should be. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. O Lord God, have mercy on us and help us to lament as you have taught us that we might remember who you are, that we might not just whine and moan about our problems, but we might come to you knowing that you are the one who has promised and you are the one who has said that you will make all things right. So as we lament, as we weep and moan, help us to moan to you, the living God, the one who continues to fulfill your promises in Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Help us to lament in this way. Help us to weep with those who weep and to, to, to comfort those who are afflicted with the same comfort with which we have been comforted, that we might show forth the great mercy of, of, of you, our Heavenly Father, that we might walk in the way of peace. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.